Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, we're looking in the book of Galatians. I'd like you now to take your Bibles and join with me as we're making our way to this fourth chapter. And thus far, what we have found is that Paul brilliantly has used argument as a means to draw people's attention to the work of Christ. But though he has been using a doctrinal argument, now it's time for an emotional appeal. It seems as though something has touched his heart. If you've ever been perplexed, confused, because you've introduced someone to saving faith in Jesus Christ, maybe at an earlier age, maybe at a later age, they seem to have started so well, but somewhere along the way, they were detoured. They began to head off in a different direction divergent from the Word of God. Well, if you've ever felt that way, you're in good company, because in these verses this morning, what you are going to find is that the Apostle Paul likewise is saying, with regard to these people in Galatia, I'm perplexed. You started so well, so I'm looking at you now, and I'm wondering how you got into the state, the condition that you are now in. So we're picking it up now in this fourth chapter, and we're going to begin in verse 12, and I'm going to read down through verse 20. And here we find the Apostle Paul sharing these words for you and for me. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, or as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? Well, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn your eyes, torn out your eyes and given them to me. If I now become your enemy, by telling you the truth, well, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. Because what they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. Now, it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just what I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and, and change my tone. Because I am perplexed about you. Someone on your heart this morning that you are just so incredibly perplexed about, confused, because you know the truth and you shared that truth, and that person seemingly has come to saving faith with regard to that truth. But now, for whatever reason, we find that this person is no longer living as you would hope to see, living for Jesus. We're going to talk about that. 
as we look to our Lord together now in prayer. Now, fathers, we're coming before you as people that, that seek to know Jesus Christ in a very profound, personal way. We know that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. And we know, Father, that salvation comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. We know these things. You've taught this in your word. You've validated it by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What we want to do, Father, is to probe, to think, so that we're better equipped to minister to those that, to those that can leave us perplexed. Because somewhere along the way in the course of their life journey, they took a side road, took a detour, and right now they're, they're in a different place than we think they were meant to be. We need your wisdom to be able to minister to people such as those. So guide us, direct us, warm these hearts, Engage these minds. Shape these wheels. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and on him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the writers pertaining to the Civil War period, there is one that seems to be readily sought out. His name is Shelby Foote. He's written the monumental three-volume work on the Civil War. And he's recalling the time in which the nation had approached its third year of the bloody Civil War. When Abraham Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, on January 1st of 1863, where the proclamation declared that all persons held as slaves in the rebellious states are and henceforward shall be free, quote, unquote. Shelby Foote writes, Every slave could repeat with equal validity what an Alabama slave had said in 1864 when asked what he thought of the great emancipator whose proclamation went into effect that year. Quote, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln, he replied, except they say he set us free. And I don't know nothing about that either, unquote. One of the big issues in the course of humanity is the course of what does it truly mean to be free? What you and I find is that we have entered into this world not as free people, but enslaved people. We enter in this world in bondage, slavery of sin, to the penalty of sin, which needed to be paid, the power of sin, which needed to be broken. 
And so we find our freedom not in our works. We find our freedom in Christ's work who sets the captive free. But here now is what is so challenging to the Apostle Paul. Here's the issue now before him, which very frankly, as he says in verse 20, I am perplexed. He knows he's writing to believers. You know that he's writing to believers. Because if you look very carefully at the wording here in his, in his epistle, he had said to the Galatians in chapter 3 and in verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the issue. Though they are sons in the faith, they are operating, they are living as though they are still slaves. So what he's now doing is he's creating this incredible tension between the freedom that is found in being a son and the bondage which is found in being a slave He's saying, you are a son, but you are living like a slave. You are free, but you are living as though you're in bondage. And now what he wants to do, after having detailed through a doctrinal argument, is to move towards what you and I might describe as an emotional appeal, trying to get to their heart to understand what it is that is so burdening Paul. And perhaps you have someone in your life right now. It might be a parent. It might be a relative. It might be a co-worker, student. But your heart's weighed down because you see that that person seems to be held hostage. Held in bondage. We want to find a way to show them where true freedom is found. So now in this emotional appeal, what Paul is going to do for you and for me now is he's going to equip us. And he's going to equip you and me with what we will describe here as two significant challenges that somehow, someway, we're going to have to be able to provide to those who are still living as though they're slaves, even though they are free, so that the eyes of their hearts, so to speak, as Paul would write in Ephesians, are opened to what it is that God has done by grace. Here's the first challenge. It's found in verse 12 down to verse 16. We're going to phrase it like this, number one. Remember your initial response to the gospel and how it came to you. What you want to be able to do for that person who seems so bound, who has taken a detour away from the authentic, pure grace of God, is to take them back to what I'll call first things. Their first encounter with truth. Take them back to what reinvigorated their soul when all seemed lost. And then they realized that they had been found by Jesus. Now look very carefully about the way in which the gospel first came to these Galatians. 
And Paul was involved. And for some of us here this morning, you were involved in perhaps leading someone or many to Jesus Christ, but along the way, one or more have taken detours. And you want to take them back to first things, that initial response to the gospel, how it came to them. Notice how he, 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 he picks up in verse 12 these words, I, I plead with you. You feel that? Sense the intensity there? No longer does he merely say, I, I, I argue my case. I plead with you, and maybe you've had to look at a loved one right in the eyes, and there's this impassioned yet controlled sense of urgency. I plead with you. Brothers. He says brothers because this, these individuals are part of the family of faith. He doesn't say unbelievers. These are, in his words, sons functioning like slaves. I plead with you, brothers, notice the wording. Become like me, for I became like you. Let's break that down. Why does Paul say, become like me? That almost sounds arrogant, prideful, until we dig a little deeper, you see. Because Paul longed for them to become like him in faith, like him in life, like him in freedom. Because he's embraced the truth that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and liberty is found in Christ and living for him. He wanted Christian freedom when he used that phrase, become like me. He'd say something similar to King Agrippa. He would be standing before Agrippa and he was, Paul, in chains. Here's the irony. In a short time, you think, to make me a Christian? Agrippa shouted out at Paul. To which Paul responded, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Except for these chains. There's irony. Paul was in chains and yet was free. King Agrippa was theoretically free, but in reality was in chains to the penalty and the power of sin. Paul is saying it's not the outward, it's the inward that you've got to examine very carefully. He makes this emotional appeal. Become like me, he says wants to identify with them. When he goes on to say, for I became like you. What does it mean when Paul says, I became like you? Well, maybe 1 Corinthians 9 helps us out. When verse 20 through 22, he said to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. 
became all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And so what would you have to do at this point is to examine very carefully how can I go about identifying with people so that in any way, shape, or form, I'm going to be able to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And to help that, that believer who, for whatever reason at this point in their spiritual journey, has taken a detour and found himself, herself in chains to help set them free. I thought about that. when I, My mind went back to a book entitled Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Now, Taylor was a missionary in China. A Western missionary in China. And the challenge in his opening years of ministry there was that he dressed like a Westerner and he appeared as though this is an individual who doesn't fit in. Listen to these words. Wearing Chinese dress in those days involved shaving the front part of the head and letting the hair grow long. No missionary or foreigner conformed to such a custom at that time. For an occasional journey, a Chinese gown might be used or one's ordinary clothing. But to give up European dress and adopt the native custom altogether was quite another matter. Hudson Taylor had not been in China for a year and a half without realizing the social ostracism such action would involve. But here was the tension. Would he maintain his sense of respect from the Western missionaries? Or would he gain an opening among the Chinese people? The writer says it was access to the people he desired. It was to win the Chinese that he desired, rather than sacrifice their approval for that of the small foreign community that was out in the ports. So what did he do? He had portion of his head shaved, allowed for other portions of his hair to be braided, took on Chinese garb, walked the streets sharing the gospel, and all of a sudden there was an open door. He was now able to communicate effectively. Question. Do you have any traditions, any customs, any methods right now that might be either outdated, that may have fit into one era but no longer in this era, fit into one setting but not in this particular setting, where adjustments have to be made so that you would be able to do with that person you are so perplexed about to communicate effectively, become like me, for I became like you. That's not compromise. We're not compromising truth. We're just changing methods. And we can't confuse truth with methods. Truth is changeless. Methods are changeable. Keep adjusting your methods to be able to communicate effectively in your family, in the workplace, in the schools, but commit yourself to the changeless truth of the gospel in these changing times we're in so that 
we're able to communicate effectively for God's glory. That's what Taylor did. That's what Paul is doing. I plead with you, brothers, you feel the urgency here. Become like me, for I became like you. Now, now you've done me no wrong. But then he adds these words. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Now, what you and I have to do is occasionally pause and remind ourselves, as we did a few weeks ago, there are various reasons in this world why believers suffer. As we stated, some of those reasons might include educational suffering, where we're meant to educate others on the way in which we live for God. Substitutionary suffering, such as in the ultimate sense, Jesus died for sinners. In a political sense, a soldier lays down his life for the sake of a nation. Empathetic suffering, such as in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where you may be prone to, you may be called to, for a period of time, suffer so that you might enter into the sufferings of others. What we might call doxological suffering, where Joseph had been placed in slavery in Egypt. You meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. Or in this particular case, evangelistic suffering. It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Now, when you and I are challenging people, remember your initial response to the gospel and how it came to you. Two factors should emerge. In their minds, the trials should be, should be recounted. They'll look back at the trials you faced in life and how, and how you were able to, by God's grace, manage them and, in fact, overcome them. Listen to this. When Adoniram Judson was dying, news came to him that some Jews in Turkey had come to saving faith through reading the account of his sufferings in Burma. Here's his response. This awes me, he said to his wife. This is good news. When I was a young man, I prayed for the Lord to send me to Jerusalem to minister to the Jews. But instead, he sent me to Burma to share the gospel, and I have been tortured and imprisoned. But now, now because of my sufferings, God has brought some Jews in Turkey to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Have you pondered with me what I'll call the complexities of suffering? The complexities of illness? 
the complexities of difficult circumstances and the wide-ranging reasons, sometimes overlapping reasons, as to why we go through what we go through. It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. What's he doing? In this emotional appeal, now I can almost see him locking eyes. He's getting them to remember what he himself was willing to go through for the sake of communicating the gospel to them. You see, people have short-term memories when it comes to other people's illnesses. Short-term memories when it comes to other people's hardships. Long-term memories regarding ours. Short-term regarding others. Sometimes they need a refresher course. And so now what Paul is doing is he's offering a refresher course in gospel presentation. You remember? It's because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. God, God sent me on a, on a different road in order to meet up with you here to share with you Jesus even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. But now, some questions emerge. And anytime you're perplexed about someone who has taken a spiritual detour in the journey of life, there's some legitimate questions that could be raised. Here's one of them. What has happened to all your joy? Do you see that? Right there, verse 15. He's looking at the Galatians now who seem to have been prone to start adding once again to the basis of salvation. In this case, their case, circumcision plus Christ's finished work, which is an oxymoron. And in the process, what they have done is to inadvertently and yet personally enslave themselves. Now Paul's looking at them. And in essence, he's saying to them what he would say to you and me today. It is impossible to lose your salvation. But it's entirely possible to lose the joy of your salvation. It is impossible to lose your salvation if you put faith and trust in Jesus. He's got you. But it's entirely possible to lose the joy of your salvation. So that you tend to approach Christianity with a grimace. With a sense of sighing endurance. Rather than a liberated spirit. That God in fact has truly set you free. Let me pause here and ask you. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If so, 
Somewhere along the way, did you lose the joy of that salvation? The joy of our Lord is our strength. Literally from the Hebrew. If you find yourself in this life pilgrimage beginning to lose strength, evaluate your joy. Salvation leads to joy, and joy leads to strength. And they are connected. But that's not the only question he poses here. Look at verse 16. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Another question. Which leads to this other factor that needs to be part of the refresher course of life. Not only the trials recounted, but also the truth reviewed. Verse 16. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? What truth? Doctrinal truth. Among other things, that we are sinners, came into this world in bondage to sin, but Christ died for our sins, and we are freed from the penalty of sin. We are freed from the power of sin. We are free now to serve Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. It's the truth that sets us free. In my files, I came across an older comic strip. It was called Mama by Mel Lazarus in one of his strips. It shows Mama. She's entertaining her perpetual suitor, Mr. K, who, in her estimation, he is no catch whatsoever. But he's persistent. And so in the scene, the two are sitting on the couch, and Mr. K says, Mrs. Hobbs, I am at a low ebb. Psychologically. My ego is flattened. They're senior citizens, mind you, lost their loved ones. Now, Mrs. Hobbs sees the suitor looking at her, and Mrs. Hobbs then responds in an affirming way and says, Ah, Mr. K, let me hasten to state that you are a fine, interesting, and attractive man. Well, all of a sudden, she's got his eyebrows raised. Perks up and says, Oh, Mrs. Hobbs. Is that the truth? To which in the last frame, Mrs. Hobbs says, no. There'll be plenty of time for truth when you're emotionally stronger. Quote, unquote. What fascinates me about America today is that I'm not totally convinced of our emotional strength when it comes to matters of truth. So two pivotal questions now are emerging here. What has happened to all your joy? He says to these family of faith members. Can't lose your salvation, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. Just where did you misplace it? Furthermore, if I now become your enemy by telling you the truth, once you embraced it, but now you seem to be distancing yourself from it and from me personally, 
I'm simply the one who is sharing the truth. I am not the embodiment of the truth. That's Jesus. But have you ever felt that kind of alienation among people who took a detour and now you're perplexed? There's your first challenge, that somehow you've got to be able to communicate in terms they can understand. Remember your initial response to the gospel, you want to say to them, and how it came to you, and let that fire begin to rage again inside the soul, because it's raging in Paul's right now. You can feel it. But now he takes a breath, and here's his. He delivers his second challenge. It's found in verse 17, down through verse 20. Recognize any spiritual opposition to the gospel and how to resist it. So now he's saying to these people who've been detoured spiritually, and now he's so incredibly perplexed by them, I want you to once again develop a sense of spiritual discernment so that you are able then to distinguish between the true versus the false. To distinguish between the right versus the wrong. Because in a confusing society, the true and the false and the right and the wrong get blended together until it becomes the culture of gray. So now with a deep breath, you can almost see him saying this in verse 17 and 18. Take a look at the spiritual opposition. Galatians. Those people are zealous to win you over. Comma. But for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. We'll pause there. What I want to do with you, just very briefly, is to draw an incredible contrast between spiritual opposition, spiritual opponents, and biblical proponents. Spiritual opponents of the gospel are zealous and seek to alienate. Now, notice what he says here, and this is fascinating. He says, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. Bad motives. What we have to bear in mind is this. We can't confuse zeal with truth. One can be very zealous, yet very wrong. Nor can we confuse sincerity with truth. Because one can be very sincere, yet very wrong. What fascinated me when I went to a Christian college and then later on uh, to graduate school, that in various Christian campuses... Cults would occasionally appear and camp out just on the outskirts of these campuses, trying somehow, some way, to win over some of the believers on these campuses to join them. And I saw it happen. 
and one of my classmates my freshman year in college left to join a particular group. When I arrived on the scene for graduate school and I was at Trinity, I remember going into a grocery store and when I came out, there was this guy in a long robe and he was trying to sell me some goods that were related to financing his particular cult. I always find it interesting that they want me to pay. And so what I wanted to do is to tell them what Christ has paid. That this is by grace and not by works. He got so agitated, he jumped up on my car, began to jump up and down with his paraphernalia, still trying to sell me his stuff. Left an impression on my mind. Left an impression on my car. When I look back on that experience, what again reminds me is the fact that one can be very zealous, yet very wrong. One can be very sincere, yet very wrong. And in the age of tolerance, where we no longer make such distinctions between the true and the false and the right and the wrong, in this blending of sorts, there can be a blending likewise of zeal and sincerity, sometimes more zeal, sometimes more sincerity, and can be very heartfelt. But the test of truth is not sincerity. And the test of truth is not zeal. The test of truth is the empty grave. So spiritual opponents of the gospel are zealous, and yet they seek to alienate, alienate you from us, he says. So look at verse 19, because here's the flip side. Biblical proponents of the gospel desire for Christ to be formed in you, my dear children. He says that because he has led these people to Jesus. My dear children, now he's going to use a maternal illustration for the mums of this congregation. You're going to be able to process what he's saying here. He's going to use this kind of analogy. For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Underline that word formed. He's not content with the idea that Christ be in you, dwell in you. It's that Christ be formed in you. In other words, he is taking them through the entire gestation period and reminding them that as a baby advances through the stages of that nine-month period, the distinctiveness of that child is increasingly apparent. What he is saying is that we need to be aware of the distinctiveness of Christ within you which is a critical reminder, by the way, to those of us who are parents. It's not that we want to have us, our image, formed within our children. It's that Christ is formed in our children, you see. 
so that they're identifying with his distinctives. So he pulls all this together and he says, as you are able to mature in grace, you should be able to make contrasts. You should be able to make distinctions between spiritual opponents and biblical proponents. And so now he kind of pulls this together for us. Takes a deep breath and you can almost feel him now. Feel his, the change in tone. Because he says, I'm perplexed about you. Your sons, you're living like slaves. So how do you minister? I'd say you don't give up. You don't give up. Even when circumstances are hard, the distance is great, the challenges can seem overwhelming. I thought about that, of what's been occurring in our in our climactic conditions over the past weeks. It's amazing for us here in Wisconsin that Atlanta gets shut down over a couple of inches of snow. But then my thought went to a particular story of what occurred in Alabama. Anytime there's a story about a neurosurgeon, for personal reasons, it always captures my attention. An Alabama neurosurgeon was at Brookwood Medical Center when he was needed six miles away for emergency brain surgery at Trinity Medical Center. Dr. Rincues set off in his car, but a rare snowstorm locked down traffic, and he didn't get farther than a few blocks. Dressed in his hospital scrubs, the 62-year-old got out of his car and walked the rest of the trip in freezing temperatures. He had a 90% chance of death, Dr. Renkew said of the patient who had gone unconscious. He was being interviewed. Dr. Renkew said that if the patient did not have surgery, he would have died. I mock what comes next in this quote. And that's not going to happen on my shift. Quote, unquote. People, that's how I take, that's how I view the pastorate. And that's how we should view us as a congregation. We're not going to give up on that kind of person. That's not going to happen on our shift. Let's stand together. Love each one here. We are doing our desperate duty, Father, to be able to communicate truth and love throughout the week, 24-7. And we want people through this region beyond to realize that sincerity is not the test of truth, though it's a wonderful thing to be sincere. 
zeal is not the test of truth, though it's a wonderful thing to be zealous if the cause is right. It's the grave that's the test of truth. There's a vacancy sign hanging over Christ's grave. It's empty. And because of that, we embrace the truth that he had proclaimed. It's the truth that sets us free. And so if we are today burdened, perplexed like Paul was, because we see people, perhaps there's somebody imprinted upon our minds today who made a profession of faith but's living living as though they're in bondage to something, someone else. Now I'm praying very particularly, Father, that truth will be raised up even right now in that person's mind and heart. Liberate that person. Show them the true freedom and that is found in the relationship we have with our God through Jesus Christ. May the result be, Father, that they show all the distinctives, again, of being part of the family of God. If there's anyone in any of these services, Father, who grapples with these things personally, free them now by the repentance of sin and faith in Christ and Christ alone. Set them free. For this we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.